You are listening to sermons from New Creation Reformed Presbyterian Church. Well, I'd like for you at this time to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 38. Ezekiel chapter 38. <clears throat> And this evening we are looking at a prophecy which is very difficult to understand if you consult the many, many commentaries on the various uh, books of the Bible and commentaries on the book of Ezekiel in particular and Revelation, then you will know of course that there are many different uh, opinions and interpretations uh, respecting these passages. And so they are difficult chapters uh, we know the Bible itself tells us that not all scripture is equally plain in itself. There are many things that are difficult to understand. Many things that Paul wrote that were difficult to understand, and Peter even recognized that. That in the letter of, letters of Paul, there are many things that are hard to understand. And so this is uh, a, a section of, pas- of uh, prophecy that is difficult. And we'll do our best to lay out the various possibilities, maybe uh, providing one that um, might seem more favorable. But again, uh, if you have a different understanding than what I'm going to be presenting you, I understand that. So that's, uh, I understand that. So Ezekiel chapter 38, uh, I'm going to read at this point the first six verses. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out, and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords, Persia, Cush, Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth Torgamah, from the outermost parts of the north and all his hordes, many peoples are with you. Now this begins this prophecy concerning Gog and Magog, which continues throughout the remainder of chapter 38 and 39. And it's a picture of a great battle, a tremendous revolt against the Lord and the Lord's people, which ends with the ultimate destruction of Gog and Magog and all of these nations who are gathered together against the Lord. And it seems that these passages are not to be taken strictly literally, but that these are very symbolic. Just as the prophet Daniel was given many visions, prophecies of the future New Testament age, which were highly symbolic, and they pointed to things that were taking place and that are taking place in the New Testament age. But it's hard to just put, uh, uh, point your finger at exactly uh, what each thing is. What it seems most likely is that the battle that's presented here 
is the tremendous spiritual battle uh, between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Right? The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Satan and Christ. This is a spiritual battle that takes place. We know, for example, from Ephesians chapter 6, you know, that we are told that we are in this battle and that we, we take up the full armor of God. Uh, it's not a literal armor that we wear, but it is uh, an armor full of the graces and gifts of the gospel by which we are able to withstand the evil day and the assaults of Satan. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, Again, there where Paul writes to us and says that the, the weapons of our warfare are not physical weapons, right? They are spiritual we weapons, and we take every thought captive for Christ. And so it seems that this may be uh, the nature of this particular battle that's taking place. But we also know that the spiritual battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light uh, impresses itself actually in the actions of people, right? Just as we know that uh, Judas Iscariot actually betrayed Jesus. And uh, the Jews, with the Romans, crucified Jesus. And so that was spiritually driven by Satan, but it manifested itself in the actions of people. And this may be, again, what this prophecy is referring to uh, the activity of Satan through this great horde of people who are coming against the kingdom of God in the future. Well, let's look at what is said here and then we'll try to uh, do our best to uh, think about what this actually means and how it can apply to us. First of all, you notice in verse 2, the mention of Gog and Magog. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach. Now, again, Gog and Magog, uh, these names, when you consider all of the genealogies, seem to be very obscure names. We, knew, we know that Magog uh, is a descendant of Japheth, and the descendants of Japheth became what we know to be the Gentile, by and large, the Gentile nations of the European lands. And then Gog uh, is a descendant of Reuben, but it's interesting that we know that Reuben, uh, in defiling his father's bed, uh, lost his position as the firstborn and so Gog himself seems to be uh, emblematic of an apostate of the people. And here we have then the, the, the future descendants of whoever these people are that will come against the kingdom of God. It's very interesting in verse 4 you note that God says, And I will turn you about and put, put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army. And then it lists the army. You have Persia, you have Cush, right? You have Gomer, and you have Beth Torgama, 
And when you know where these people are, you'll see that these great peoples are coming from the four points of the compass, right? North, south, east, and west. And they're the distant lands of the compass. And here God is saying, I'm putting hooks in your mouth and I'm drawing you out. And the image there is like these people are like beasts, right? They're like animals that have a hook in their mouth. And God is bringing them out to his people where he will allow them to attack and to surround. That's the image here. We see, for example, in um, verse 14 of chapter 38. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel are dwelling securely, will you know it? Will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the out uttermost parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me. When through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And so here you have these two things going on. One is God is bringing them. But then at the same time, we see that they are willingly coming. And this is a picture again of how God is sovereign over all the activities of mankind, including this event that seems to be taking place in the far distant future, it says a number of times in the latter days, and in particular in the last of the latter days, as, uh, as we look through this. Um, for example, if you look uh, beginning at verse 7, be ready and keep ready, you and all your host that are assembled about you, and be on guard for them. After many days, you will be mustered. In the latter years, you will go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. So again, these are difficult passages to understand, but the picture that we are being presented with is something that's taking place in the distant future, in the New Testament age, and it seems to be a time when all of the Lord's people have been gathered together in their land, right, in their land, and they are at peace, and then God is going to muster or allow this great horde to muster from the four corners of the earth and come in and surround and pounce upon his people. And... It will take place at, in this distant future and it will end with the total destruction of Gog and Magog and this huge army. In chapter 38 and verses 21 and 22, look at what it says here. I will summon a sword against Gog on my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother with pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him. And I will rain upon him and his hordes 
and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur, raining fire down upon him, bringing total destruction. Throughout chapter 39, we see the uh, end of this great destru destruction. Uh, again, it can't be pressed to be literal because the bodies of the slain are destroyed by earthquake, by fire. They're laying out on the surface and they need to be buried and it takes seven months to bury them all. But it's a picture of complete destruction upon Gog and Magog and all of this host that are gathered together with them. A vast army. A vast army. Now, is there anything that we can look to that can help us understand what's going on here? Well, I think there is. One thing is that we can see in all the prophets that that expression, the latter days, the latter days, refers to the New Testament age. Okay? This is the age where Christ is reigning uh, in heaven. Uh, he's ascended and he's reigning in heaven. This is the latter days. But it also seems to be the, toward the end of the latter days that this takes place. Now, with this in mind, Revelation chapter 20 helps us. So let's turn again to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Again, beginning at verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into a pit and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any long, longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And then when you look down at verse 7, this gets picked up again. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So this seems to be referring then to the same events that Ezekiel is seeing. That Ezekiel is looking in uh, by, by vision prophecies, looking down or looking toward the future and seeing uh, this great time. Now, there's something interesting when you look at Ezekiel. I want you to look at, open your Bibles and look at uh, Ezekiel 37 uh, and 38. And you notice here that in chapter... 37, we see that Ezekiel is given a vision of the, the bones, the valley of dry bones, and what do you see there is a huge resurrection, right? A huge restoration. Uh, they are made alive again. And then in 37, remember we looked at this last time with the stick, the joining together of Ephraim and Judah. Restored again together, no longer as separate peoples, but gathered together. And that these were gathered from the uh, nations of the earth. And then we have in chapter 38, Gog and Magog followed by a great judgment, which ends in chapter 43 with the temple and the throne of God. 
Now, look at the parallel here in Revelation chapter 20. What do we have? Well, we have a resurrection, right? In Revelation chapter 20, and in the, uh, in the middle of verse, or the end of verse 4, it says, They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to, the, to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. And so here we see a resurrection like the Valley of Dry Bones. And then we have Gog and Magog came, come about. And then a judgment. And then in verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who seated on it from his presence. So it, it seems to me that these are parallels. They're pictures. The similarities are there. We have in Ezekiel 37, a resurrection of dry bones and a great reunion of Israel and Judah. And then we see Gog and Magog being assembled from the four corners of the earth to pounce upon the Lord's people. But then God comes raining fire and destruction upon Gog and Magog. And that's what we find in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, chapter 20, uh, we see a resurrection, the first resurrection, then we have Gog and Magog, and then we have a judgment and the great throne, white throne of judgment. So we're looking at events that seem to be parallel or pointing to the same thing. But what do these events actually refer to? What are they? Well, there are basically four views four opinions, four schools of thought respecting this, and they all revolve around what we think the thousand years represents. Right? In Revelation chapter 20, this thousand years, um, I saw the angel coming down from heaven, uh, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And then after this thousand years, that's when Satan is let out again. And he comes with Gog and Magog upon his people. And so the four views all have tried to understand what this thousand years represent. Now there are two schools that see the thousand years to represent a long period of time, a long period of time in the New Testament age where there is tremendous success, gospel success, where the nations, the nations of the world are by and large Christian nations and that the entire world is basically a Christian world. Now that doesn't mean that every single person is a believer, but it means that the visible church, as it were, encompasses the nations of the world. It's found in all the nations. All the nations are basically Christian nations for a long period of time. One school that holds to that is a premillennial view, which says that history gets worse and worse and worse until Christ returns physically on the earth and sets up a kingdom, his kingdom, in Jerusalem and then reigns from Jerusalem here on earth for a thousand years. And it's a, it's a long period of um, 
prosperity and, and peace and so on because Christ is on the earth reigning. And then after that thousand years, then comes the final judgment after that. There's another return, as it were. That's a premillennial view. And we, uh, I'm not inclined to this uh, view because the return of Christ, when he returns, is presented in the Bible as the last event of history. And it's a single event. There's not two returns of Christ. There's only one, and that brings the end, which includes the resurrection and the great throne judgment. So I don't think that the premillennial view is a possibility. And then there is the, what we call the modern post-millennial view, which would say that the gospel and the Great Commission uh, continues to have success and eventually has real success until all the nations of the world become Christian. And then it stays like this until Christ returns. And when Christ returns, he's going to return to a Christianized world. Basically, when all the world is uh, comprised of Christian nations, then Jesus will return. This modern post-millennial view uh, can view the thousand years as relating to the entire period of the New Testament age that from the ascension of Jesus until his return, that the kingdom of Christ just expands and grows in all the nations until the nations become Christian, and then Christ returns. Third view, uh, well, I should, I should probably stop and say, um, I don't favor this view, and the reason why is because it's difficult to reconcile that Satan is released after the thousand years and before the return of Christ. There seems to be a period after the thousand years when Gog and Magog is going to come across, up, upon the church. So, premillennial, modern postmillennial, not uh, favored toward that. Then there's the amillennial view, which says that there, we really shouldn't think of the thousand years as a, as a millennial of... Uh, success of the gospel in the earth, so to speak. But that the millennium refers to the entire New Testament age, and it's referring, it's, it's the time when the Lord is bringing people to life through conversion, and then as believers die, their souls go to heaven and reign with Christ in heaven. And so our perspective on the earth really isn't about the visible kingdom of Christ growing in the earth, but about the kingdom of God, his spiritual kingdom, as it's growing and souls are filling up in heaven. That's the amillennial view. Again, the difficulty that I have with that uh, is that it doesn't seem to make room for the many passages of scripture which seem to indicate that the visible church is actually encompassing the nations of the earth. That it's not just a reign in heaven. And again, the idea that there is this period of Gog and Magog after this thousand years and before Christ's return. And so, um, you know, following good method in teaching, I save the best for last, or that view which I think is, is uh, the best of the views. Every single view has its difficulty. 
Okay, you can point at each one and say, this doesn't seem to fit this and this doesn't seem to fit this. And so this final view as well has its difficulties. But of all the views, it seems to me to reconcile all the passages of Scripture the best. And this view is what um, I'd refer to as the uh, Puritan post-millennial view. This is the, the main school position of our Reformed and Puritan forefathers. And its view is simply this, that the thousand years, the millennium, is not the entire New Testament age, but it is a period within the New Testament age where the kingdom of Christ, the visible kingdom of Christ, the church, the Great Commission, does have tremendous widespread success throughout the entire earth, that the earth does become Christian, as it were. All the nations of the earth do become Christian nations, and that that condition lasts in world history for a long period of time. Connected with that is the conversion of the Jews, by and large, as a nation. And so they are all brought into that as well. And that then, at the end, or at the end of this great period of prosperity, <clears throat> there is a final apostasy, a final time when it seems that it's all overturned for a second, that Satan is unbound, as it were, <clears throat> and comes upon all of the Christian nations just prior to the return of Christ. And so Christ comes in the final judgment after that period. Now, the reason why uh, I favor this view, recognizing that it has its difficulties as well, is that it seems to allow for all of the various passages of Scripture to harmonize best, as it were. For example, <clears throat> this view allows for the success of the Great Commission. Okay, it allows for the success of the Great Commission. When Christ said, go and make disciples of all nations, and when he teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done in all, in all the earth uh, as it is in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven, and when we sing through so many of the psalms of all the nations worshiping and pra praising God, when we read in Isaiah of the latter days when the nations will uh, beat their swords, their weapons into plowshares, that they'll all come to the mountain of the Lord and that there will be peace. Uh, the many prophetic passages <clears throat> which speak of the reign of Christ in this time with success over all the lands, right? The earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This view allows for that. It says that there is a millennium, a time, when Christ's visible kingdom, before he returns, nevertheless encompasses the earth. It allows for the mass conversion of the Jews at a time, which is said in Romans 11 by Paul, which will be like life from the dead. Uh, and so it allows for that. Rather than the views of premillennialism and amillennialism, which basically say things either get worse and worse and worse and worse throughout all of history, or they basically stay unchanged. You know, you always just have a, a, a few Christian churches throughout the nations throughout the age. 
It also allows for the passages that show us that it seems that there will be a time of great persecution, apostasy, and pressure against the church when Jesus returns. Right? It allows for that. So when we think of the return of Christ and we think of, you know, will there be faith in the earth when Jesus returns? It seems as if, you know, the church will be completely under oppression. Well, this view allows for that because it allows for at the end of the latter days for Gog and Magog and this anti-Christian uh, apostasy and uh, oppression upon the church. It allows for that uh, in Revelation 20. And then it also allows for the clear teaching that at the return of Christ, it's just one event. He comes at the very end of history and he comes in his glory and he comes in retribution for the final and great uh, judgment upon all. Well, those are the possibilities, and I'd suggest to you, I think that the latter one is the most consistent, although, again, uh, not, uh, not without its wrinkles and difficulties. What do we, how do we grab something practical out of all this? Well, the most practical, I think, lesson, of course, is the most obvious one. Uh, the Lord wins. The Lord wins, and his people are kept and preserved. And we see that it is the Lord who is in control of all these things. When we think of Gog and Magog and the release of Satan uh, at the end of the, of the thousand years, that is all under the sovereignty of the Lord, that God is the one who allows that to take place for his glory. We, see, we have seen that throughout Ezekiel time and again. Then they will know that I am the Lord that all of these things that take place are by his hand. Well, I'm sure that you may have many questions, and uh, if you want to ask and discuss after the service, we can certainly do that. Thank you for listening to sermons from New Creation Reformed Presbyterian Church. God bless you.